Welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm Matt Leck. With me is Alex Guns. Hi, Alex. Hello. And Grace and Grace Jackson. Hi. And Alex, you're uh, a, a few blocks away from me in Brooklyn. Uh, Grace, where are you at? I am in the Lake District in the north of England. And uh, seemingly a more um, calm place right now, I hope, maybe than Brooklyn and New York City is. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's pretty muted. All the tourists have left. Um, uh, yeah. But it's, it's, it's the countryside, so it's a good place to quarantine, basically. Yeah, so this is basically our second pandemic episode, um, which is a depressing thing to have to say, but I think we might be here for a while, folks. Uh, and today we're going to get back to Bacon's Rebellion, 1676, uh, with the play by Afroben, who we talked about, her uh, novelette, Orinoco, or novella, whatever we're calling it, um, this time it's a play. She's more famous. She was more famous in her day as a playwright. Uh, this is called The Widow Ranter. Uh, and this was not uh, produced in her lifetime. Actually, it was produced shortly after she died in 1689, I want to say. Mm, yeah, that's right. Um, and I guess to open it up with, what are your guys... We won't get into any of the details, but what do you guys think aesthetically of the po- of, of this play? Yeah, I think it's... I mean, it's a wild ride. It's... Uh, it's a restoration tragedy comedy, I suppose. So it's very high energy. It's kind of chaotic. There's a lot of humor um, and bawdy comedy, which is something that she was kind of famous for. But it's really like a genre piece. And one of the things that I guess we'll get into in this episode is how kind of deftly she transforms her historical materials and how kind of brazenly she transforms this episode into a tragic comic uh, piece. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of like venereal disease puns here. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, for instance, and also, yeah, it, we talk about her being a spy um, uh, in the first episode, but this really, it really, this is where you start. She start she's playing with history here in, in ways that like suit a sort of Tory, mm-hmm. this original Tory individualist monarchist, I guess, sort of aristocratic how what i guess what adjectives would you put to it grace like propagandistic um, you know uh pro-tory treatment of this episode that really reinforces ideas of hierarchy and status i think at a time when england was very anxious about all of that stuff being being disrupted um exclusion crisis uh, yeah right the exclusion crisis leading to the glorious revolution Um, which was going on when she wrote this, which saw um, the House of Stuart, uh, which was like Afroben. Afroben was very pro-Charles, very pro-James, and she worked for the House of Stuart as a propagandist. I think we basically know that about her. Yeah. Yeah, and this year the House of Stuart are going to be supplanted by the House of Orange, uh, with William of Orange coming over from from the Dutch uh, and taking over. So there's a lot going on in the background of this play. Before we get to uh, Ben's politics uh, more uh, in more detail, I want to get to, uh, you know, with the English Civil War, well, actually a timeline of Ben here. Um, So a chronology of Ben, she's probably born around 1640, 
1642 is when the Civil War begins and the theaters close. It's funny in how like the theaters close when there's different sort of like state crises. I mean, it, it's, it reminds me a lot of actually what's going on now. Um, <laughs> that happens a few times. It's, uh, like when Charles II died, it's like, okay, theaters are closed for a while, guys. Sorry. Um, it's going to be 10 months before any more plays. Cause there's only two play companies um, producing anything. Uh, they were both. Royal. Like the other parallel being that that was a time of massive collective trauma. Mm, like because for, of the civil war yeah because of the civil war and like seeing the monarch executed was i think something of a like psychic break for the, the people i'm seeing parallels to that just right now and the fact that we are undergoing something like truly on a global globally collective scale uh, yes amazingly global um she would have been about eight or nine when uh charles the first was executed um, so yeah, I guess that is like our nine eleven, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Jesus. So Ben, uh, Ben's. We don't really know much about her, to be honest. That's why a whole lot of this right. is Civil War chronology. Uh, she finally. It says about sixteen sixty three. So when she's about twenty three, they say she uh, goes to Suriname for the first time, probably. Um, there's the Dutch of War. Suriname basically is England's first um, uh, foothold into South America. It's funny. There's this guy. Uh, I don't know if if you've heard of him, Lord Willoughby. He had a yeah. He had a pr- prospectus in 1655, basically, like to um, to colonize Suriname. And uh, just eight years later is when Ben uh, supposedly gets there um, as a spy. Um, it's um, supposed uh, and she's not there for very long it looks like by March of 1664 she leaves but her time in those um, in in Suriname uh, were instructive for her both with Orinoco and this play I mean that's why she stuck out to me upon you know early scans of um, literary history as the colonial uh, themes of it i think some people have also suggested that she may have visited virginia in the oh, yeah. area but they don't know i mean there's so yeah. much that they don't know about her right exactly um i mean things were it was this time period is crazy 1665 you get the great plague closes theaters interesting oh, um 1666 the plague abates and then the city of london burns right um oh, yeah. uh, a good time to go outside <laughs> um so hopefully that's not coming for our world but global warming um <laughs> and uh uh ben is uh it, it goes to london at around 1667 she's in debt starts working for killer Grew's kingsman theater as a as a copyist um, 1668, she's still in debt. 1670, the forced marriage is produced and more plays follow. She's actually really prolific. It was more, mm-hmm. more prolific, I think, it's said in that In Our Time podcast uh, than male playwrights of the... Yeah, she wrote time. more than Dryden, I think. Yeah. Um, Dryden, actually, we'll get to him uh, later. I don't have... Uh, yeah, we'll get to him later with the uh, prefatory uh, poem he wrote. But yeah, so she's writing plays and stuff uh, through the 1670s. There's the Popish plot. Then we get the exclusion crisis. And yeah, that this makes her write Orinoco. Uh, or 1679, the exclusion crisis. Yeah, Charles II is ill. James summoned from exile. 85, Charles dies. Theaters close. Orinoco is issued in 1688. Afro Ben dies. 1689, 
uh, buried at Westminster Abbey, um, and Widow Ranter produced in that November to not much acclaim. So, yeah, it's interesting. She is basically a, a, a published playwright during the time that Bacon's Rebellion happens, and then uh, we get this play basically uh, 12 years later. Uh, mm. um, so, you know, she would have been – it's not like ancient history that she's rewriting here. It's it's sort of like us – if I wrote a play about the financial crisis. Um, right. <laughs> uh, uh, so, like, she's aware of this stuff basically. And the interesting thing is – uh, her source of this is misstated uh, in the Project Gutenberg uh, intro. I don't know where when it's from, but it's from uh, you know years ago, hundreds of years ago. But actually, her source was the Royal Commissioner's um, report right. because she was a spy and she had really good connections. Basically, she and had access to those documents. Exactly, she had. Yeah. Um, and I mean, she wasn't like high level. I wonder what her comparison, uh, what her comparison, if she'd be like a um, Papadopoulos. <laughs> no. uh, I wonder if she like didn't write a poem for someone in exchange for a glimpse at that document, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. She definitely um, sounds like she's like the Oswald of her time in, in terms of uh, like a secret spy. Like she's at that level. Oswald was just a confused comic, <laughs> Alex. Oh, right. Sorry. Also... <laughs> She was also a hustler, and we should probably mention the fact, Matt, that she mm. was broke for most of her life. And yes. In bed, like, she was always poor and looking for the next um, Yeah. Cake, basically. It turns out that a monarchy that has a real tough time clinging to power is also not one that's terribly good at, you know, paying invoices <laughs> to its spies. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, okay, so let... Um, little summary of Ben there. Before we get to, into her specific politics, I want to uh, go to my favorite book, probably as cited as any in the literary hangover canon. <laughs> Peter Linbaugh and Marcus Redeker's The Many-Headed Hydra, folks. It's back. And we're going to page 135 this time. All right, so this is from page 136 of The Many-Headed Hydra. Uh, the resistance of plantation workers exploded in 1675-76 in Bacon's Rebellion, which was actually two distinct uprisings. The first, beginning in late 1675, was a war for land by freedmen and small farmers against Indians and a portion of the colonial ruling class in Virginia. The second, beginning in September 1676, was a war against slavery waged by servants and slaves who entered the fray after being promised their freedom by Nathaniel Bacon in exchange for military service against the forces of the Virginia governor, Berkeley. By late September, the rebel army was summed up in freemen, servants, and slaves. These three ingredients being the composition of Bacon's army. Many of Bacon's other followers, especially those who were masters, soon deserted him. But if the freeing of servants and slaves cost Bacon support from one quarter, it increased it from another, as poor, rugged fellows flocked to him from uh, all around the colony. Strange news from Virginia. This is the one that's uh, wrongly attributed as Ben's source. A strange news from Virginia, published in London in 1677, noted that Bacon's forces consisted of renegado English, along with <laughs> renegado English, along with slaves and servants. The poet Andrew Marvel heard from a ship's captain that Bacon entered Jamestown, having first proclaimed liberty to all servants and Negroes. This was the language of Jubilee. 
The abolitionists burned Jamestown and looted the estates of Berkeley's supporters. When Thomas Grantham began to negotiate on behalf of the king the final settlement of the conflict in January 1677, he faced 400 armed English and African servants and slaves. He promptly tried to divide them by offering a better deal to the servants. Some accepted the deal and went home. Others deserted to Roanoke. Still others wanted to fight on. 80 slaves and 20 servants remained in arms, prompting Grantham to make repeated, though treacherous, promises of freedom. After the still, Grantham is basically Jeff Bezos, um, he's a <laughs> merchant mariner with the giant ship that has a lot of guns on it, uh, and the and he's he's called in because none of the governing none of the uh, uh, governing bodies can figure this out. Uh, after I got I, got, I got to say, it's like you know, like America hadn't been thought out at this point, but uh, facing down an armed rebellion of four hundred uh, slaves and servants and making a deal with the servants is uh very american <laughs> they yeah, nailed exactly. it on the head exactly it's all it's so bare in virginia that's the thing is like we've we've been to massachusetts for a lot of the literary hangover journey mm-hmm. and things are more like theological and like what's antinomianism <laughs> and Virginia's like okay we're going to make it so uh white women uh their contributions economic contributions they don't pay taxes but black women you're gonna have to be taxed uh like just making explicit racial and gender um, laws. Okay. I mean, there was, of course, a degree of that in uh, New England too. Um, yeah, I feel like the difference would be like Massachusetts would be like, what is power? And Virginia is like, yeah, doesn't power rock? Like power is really good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's make a, let's make a, 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 like a temple, a giant sort of Grecian, what are they, what's the architecture they're obsessed with? I mean, maybe not yet. Um, neoclassical? Yeah, the neoclassical doesn't come until the generation after these guys, I yeah. guess, probably. Um, but anyway, so yeah, when uh, um, 80 slaves and 20 servants remained, good on those 20 servants, um, uh, remained in arms, prom- prompting Grantham to make repeated, though treacherous, promises of freedom. After the still-armed rebels boarded longboats to make their escape, he turned the ship's cannon on them, forcing them to surrender and to suffer re-enslavement. Uh, and here's where uh, Redeker and Linebaugh specifically talk about Ben. Bacon was uh, denounced as a leveler and his followers as antinomians. Uh, mm-hmm. In her play, The Widow Ranter or History of Bacon in Virginia, uh, a 1690s that they given here, Afro Ben suggested the influence of the ranters upon events in Virginia, seeing revolutionary continuity in the colony's 17th century rebellions. She may have based the character of the widow ranter on any number of female rebels, including the prostitutes who chose to die along the soldiers. Contemporaries saw in Bacon's army the fearful monstrosity theorized a half century earlier by Francis Bacon. Uh, Colonel Edward Hill lamented the many brave wise just an innocent good man that had fallen under the lash of that hydra, the vulgar. Well, Governor Berkeley wrote in June 1676 that a monstrous number of the basest people had declared for Bacon, who himself wasn't another Mansonale. Virginia's rulers executed 23, er, 23 rebels. Now, one thing we want to stress is uh, this wasn't entirely a rebellion of poor people versus rich people. There's plenty of... Uh, of uh, Basically, it, rich people who were less well-connected with the Berkeley clique. Um, is right. I've heard there was more equality than we might think in exactly. terms of land holdings between the two sides. So, yeah, that's the line bond Redeker uh, portion. Now, to go to the Maori article, Past Remembrance or History, Afro-Ben's The Widow Ranter, or How the Collective Lost Its Honor by Melissa R- Maori um, and... Uh, the journal is ELH uh, in 2012. 
if you guys have anything uh, to say about this before I go into it, you you can. But otherwise, I I can just read start reading here. Um, I struggled with some of the terms that she used, and maybe Matt, you can explain them a little bit. But this idea of like singularity versus the collective that she explores, I'm I there on what that means. I might be. I'm, this could have been me um, oversimplifying it, but I think that was just basically like the individualist versus the collectivist mentality. Right. So singularity is like the singular, like heroic individual. Um, because it, basically the thing about this play is it's Afro Ben making Bacon look good mm-hmm. um, as this heroic sort of individual, heroic romantic individual and making the... Uh, sort of civil society around him looked like a bunch of clowns. Uh, yeah. And so like the, I would think so in that sense, they're the collective and he's the singularity. Uh, right. The, the, what I really appreciate about this uh, Maori article, um, this um, Melissa Maori article though, is her, uh, her uh, summary of the, uh, the radicalism, what she calls it, the radicalism of the civil war here. So I'm going to start reading. Um, hmm. She writes, uh, the radicalism that had most threatened the Anshian regime with its unwavering and multifaceted attacks on sovereignty in the middle and late 1640s, this was when Ben was a child, uh, was the set of ideas that came to, asso- came to be associated with the Levelers, a group of writers, activists, rank-and-file soldiers, sectarians, and agitators who gravitated towards the circle compromised by John Lilburn, Rich Overton, I wonder if he's of Overton window, I'll check that out later, William Walwyn, uh, Thomas Price and John Wildman. Uh, j- spell uh, just how you would think Wildman. Um, in their earliest publications, the Levelers made it clear that they opposed the very conception of sovereignty. For them, the only legitimate form of political power was derived from the collective authority of the people. In a remonstrance of many thousand citizens and other freeborn people of England, published on 7 July 1646, Richard Overton reminded the House of Commons of this in no uncertain terms. We are well assured, yet cannot forget, that the cause of our choosing you to be Parliament men was to deliver us from all kind of bondage and to preserve the Commonwealth in peace and happiness, for effecting whereof we possessed you with the same power that was in ourselves, to have done the same, for we might justly have done it ourselves without you, if we had thought it convenient." Uh, Maori writes, what is most striking about the leveler account of delegated political power is that it was understood to be a matter of convenience and not so a true or definitive transfer of authority. Those to whom the people chose to delegate power enjoy their position because they are fitly qualified and faithful, not because they are exceptional, because governors chosen under the leveler account neither rise above nor stand beyond anything, but are merely fit and faithful. Their power is not sovereign. So central was the principle that just political power could only be grounded in the collective authority of the people to level the thought that in 1649, three months after Charles uh, I's execution, when the levelers had good reason to fear Oliver Cromwell's growing inclination to fashion himself a sovereign, that William Walwyn complained, surely to be a general is not to be above the law, except he make himself a, a tyrant. That reminds me of the uh, quotes from this play there. It's like, to hang a general? Yep, we're going to hang a general sort of very um uh i think they make that distinction like that's like that's what the the council like like that's what they pin their whole thing in their hat about like like yeah he's a general but a general that doesn't follow the law yeah exactly and the law is a very vague term which we can get into later about like what exactly that means 
Yeah, well, I mean, in this play, it's defined as this buffoonish stuff by, like, Whiff and Timorous and all these people named, like, terrible character traits. Um, One of the most interesting and understudied dimensions of radical thinking and their conception of collectivity during the English Civil Wars is the assertion that political suitability, what rendered MPs fit and faithful and therefore qualified to participate in Parliament's collective authority, depended upon love for the people and commitment to the commonweal. It was this broader collective love uh, that differentiated the royalist understanding of sovereign power from the radical understanding of delegated political authority. Through this distinction, radicals work to define sovereignty as an erotics incapable... See, I'm getting a little bit of jargon here. Let me see if I can... Uh, Mm-hmm. and erotics incapable of producing bona fide political authority. In the same pamphlet where Overton delineated the collective character of radical power, he offered the following indictment of Parliament's effort to, to negotiate peace with Charles I. Their, uh, quote, frequent treating and tampering to maintain Charles I's honor, he complained, was a dangerous capitulation to the beleaguered king's authority and an insidious validation of his sovereignty. So they're calling him sellouts, uh, basically. Uh, we that have trusted you to deliver us from his oppressions and to preserve us from his cruelties are wasted and consumed in multitudes to manifold miseries whilst you lie ready with open arms to receive him and make him a great and glorious king. God, I love these guys. Um, in addition to reiterating the multiplicity of the commons, Overton's figurative description of parliament uh, above, lying with open arms to validate a king's glory, clearly evokes the rhetoric of aristocratic romance with its implications of privilege, prerogative, and personal desire. In turn, this romantic figure functions as evidence of Parliament's willingness to betray the trust and love of the people against its validation of the king's personal glory and ancient privilege. So I think that's funny because of how it turns Bacon into this uh, Indian-hating maniac um, into he's doing this because he loves an Indian woman. Um, mm. We'll talk about her more. Like, it turns it into a romantic narrative like that. Like a courtly, almost, mm-hmm. like, uh, romance thing. Like, he's Sir Gowan or something. He becomes, like, a flawed, tragic hero in the kind of Shakespearean sense. He reminds me a little bit of Othello, actually. Mm-hmm. Othello has that quote where he's like, I loved, uh, what is it? I love not wisely, but too well. He's like, I just loved her too much. I had to kill her. (laughs) And I feel like that's the sort of thing that would, this character Bacon would say. Yeah. That's like, that's like the sort of runoff from Shakespeare that like the way Nirvana led to like Nickelback and stuff. Just like this lame, like we stop. Alfred Ben is spinning. What on on earth? (laughs) easy now <laughs> um I, I mean it's just like it's so it becomes so cliche after a certain point i think like this the, the hero where it's like oh i love you but like you know you're, it does but you can tell that she's i think that part of the play is obviously the least exciting and the least mm-hmm. fun and i think she knows that she's like giving it to the audience because she knows that's what she needs to do and then she's like well it's more fun to watch the widow ranter, like get drunk and dress up as a man and fight. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, actually, let's. Uh, so to get to her actual sort of political motivations a little bit, uh, just to go a little bit more ahead into Maori, uh, she writes. Though critics have o- often overlooked her dedication to the Roundheads, it is a frank statement of Ben's ideological aims during the 1680s. Therein she announces her project of undeceiving and informing the world about the ongoing struggle for the nation's memory of the civil wars between the lingering agents of the good old causes, 
uh, rebellion, murders, massacres, and villainies from 40 upwards, and the partisans of monarchy, religion, laws, and honesty. Uh, relishing in the struggle and argument, Ben ridiculed the premises of those who complained about her satiric representations of former commonwealthsmen, accusing her detractors of disingenuously acting, quote, as if the play were a libel, a scandal impossible to be proved, or that their rogueries were of so old a date their reign were past remembrance or history, when they take such zealous care to renew it daily to our memories. The Roundheads was likely part of what historian Gary DeCray characterizes as the, quote, loyalist counteroffensive against parliamentary efforts to exclude Charles II's brother James, then Duke of York, from the secession. And it significantly amplified the loyalist lexicon. She wraps up uh, with a note on the widow, widows and ranters, does Maori here. Um, uh, widows had long been represented as sexually excessive, and Ben reinforces the political valences attached to her title uh, character's sexuality by renaming her a ranter, and thus nominally a member of the radical sectarian group, the ranters who flourished in the early 1650s. The ranters took the doctrine of predestination to an extreme and lived their lives according to the belief that venal sins were irrelevant to the question of salvation, which I like that. Hell um, yes. Of, yes, I know. Um, some of their members made that section notorious for whoring and drinking. Practically <laughs> speaking, the ranters were short-lived. So, you know, not the longest-lasting political project. Um, but they were forever epitomized. It's a great way to, like, it's just, like, a great way to square the circle with, like, I believe in, like, like you have to do good works to get to heaven, but also it's already decided. So I might as well like fuck around. Exactly. <laughs> I think it has legs. I think we could definitely bring that back. Now. Yeah. Some of the members made the sector, uh, sect notorious for horror and drinking. Practically speaking, the ranters were short lived, but they forever epitomized the movement against King and church that had riven the country at mid century. Ben intends for her character to evoke that decadent and doctrinal extremity as well as the indiscriminacy of collective love so much in evidence in radical writing. For all her prominence and evocative force in the play's title, Ben's character is relatively minor to its action. Ranter is a witness to uh, and an ordinal point of sorts, but her position is literally a pretext for the material Ben really wanted to engage. Namely, the question of whether uh, Nathaniel Bacon's rebellion at Jamestown, Virginia in 1676 could be made to yield culturally authoritative knowledge that conformed to the, ep- <laughs> to the epistemolo- epistemology of singularity. Yeah, this is, again, getting a bit too jargony, but that conformed to the individualist mindset, let's say, uh, that she sought to pre- purvey. Ben's familiarity and engagement with the prevailing terms of political debate extending back to the Civil Wars uh, go a good distance toward explaining her otherwise inexplicable decision to retell the events of 1676 rebellion at Jamestown, Virginia, and reclaim Nathaniel Bacon when every other contemporary source treated him as a rebel and an avatar of the, quote, people, like um, uh, Ebenezer Cook did in uh, his telling. Okay, so yeah, that's the end of uh, the Maori section here. Um, uh, If you guys, unless you guys have anything else to say, I figure we can start going through the actual play now. Actually, I'm just going to put this into Balabolka and have it read it uh, for us. Here's the argument from the Widow Ranter, which is the argument, I guess. I, I don't actually read a whole lot of plays, but it's basically just the plot synopsis of the play. Mm-hmm. Um, um, all right, here's uh, from the argument. We're going to have Microsoft Zira uh, read it for us here. Argument. Bacon, General of the English in Virginia, 
has fought with great success against the Indians and repeatedly beaten back their tribes, although the Supreme Council, by whom the colony is governed, have refused him a commission, and... So, I feel like Sam, pause it. Like, already <laughs> a lot of bullshit, uh, just to take this one by one. Bacon, a general of the English in Virginia, has fought with great success against the Indians. That's not true. He never... Uh, he, he wasn't actually doing anything successful with them. He got his... Uh, plantation attacked um but like ultimately when all said when done he attacked friendly indians um uh and the and we see more interestingly though is the part here although the supreme council by whom the colony is governed ben removes berkeley from this entire scenario yes uh apparently he was afraid of libel exactly her his like brother or something was still active um, and she she had libel issues uh, in the past, or, or people in her circle did. And, and twice in the play, there are like two characters express anxiety about that as well. Oh yes, exactly. Like Magnat, what is it? Magnat. Scandalum magnatum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the court scenes are very funny in here. Um, there, there are her more like libertarian. Um, you know who Ben is? She's Evan McMullen. Um, oh no! Jesus Christ! <laughs> what the fuck? This is like the equivalent of Evan McMullen going on Pod Save America and saying, "You know, if uh, if liberals really want to learn from 2016, we should uh, we should get rid of the power of the federal government and delegate it to the states." That's yeah, what, that's what Ben is doing here. Yeah, um, the whole the whole point of these shootings is like, do we want the federal government to have this much power? I don't yeah. think so. But so uh, Ben's target is this, like, sort of these governing bodies, and uh, the Supreme Council is in place of the uh, the governor. There, there's a governor on the way, hopefully. Thank God there'd be a, 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 a father figure back. But as of now, there is <laughs> a Cuomo of sorts. Yeah, there's not a Cuomo there yet. Um, okay, so we'll just continue on. But yeah, there's a lot of bullshit in this argument. <laughs> in spite of his victories, persist in treating him as a rebel and a traitor. This council indeed is composed of a number of cowards and rogues, who through sheer malice and carping jealousy attribute Bacon's prowess to his known passion for Seymournia, the Indian queen, and who feign to... The weird thing is, is they are right. It, he does seem to be purely or mainly motivated by his love for Seymournia. Seymournia, um, I will just uh, flag now, is based on the queen of the Pamunkey, uh, the Werowansqua, of the Pamunkey tribe, uh, Koweski. Uh, and we'll talk about her later and what her true story is, but suffice it to say that Bacon wasn't in love with her, uh, by any, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And, um, and, but the weird thing is, is like the, 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 the silly council is right about Bacon, which I don't know what do you, do you guys have any thoughts about what that means dramatically? You mean within this argument? Yeah, yeah, in the, in the play, like they turn out, like it, Bacon is motivated by that, and it's ba- it's pretty low. I mean, it's the romantic motivation, so that's was I guess the aristocratic. Yeah, thing. I think it all comes back to this idea that he is a nobleman. He's like almost like a chivalric knight. He lives by an honor code, and mm-hmm. he filters that honor code through romantic love. Yeah, and it's something to do with like fidelity and you know constancy these virtues and it ends up just looking kind of pathetic like the fact right. that he's created this big hoo-ha just so he could um 
get a chance to tell the queen he loves her. <laughs> and, and it's a go ahead, Alex. But even yeah, I think it, yes. Sorry, but I, I think that even in like the the council's like decrepit state, they're still correct based on their station. Whereas like oh, right. um, Bacon is wrong because he's trying to assert himself above like a noble like errant knight up to like like some like Caesar esque level, and that mm-hmm. is uh, perverse. And so it's like even though the council is kind of dumb and like stupid, they are correct in the sense that they're there. Like it's like a tautology almost. Right, and they all like Wellman and Downright, the two main um, stand-ins for Berkeley. They uh, they retain their position, and they're pretty. Uh, decent throughout the they're not really scoured as much as you know timorous and whiff and whatever the mm-hmm. other guys names are uh it's the the whole like the romantic thing how silly it seems now and the flip side is how f- quick everyone is to duel and we'll get into this um already but everyone's like you call me you heard some a rumor about me well my sword is out of its scabbard now yeah um, <laughs> um anyway let's continue with this uh argument think that he fights merely with the hope of slaying her husband the King Cavernio. These rascals are nonetheless mightily afraid of the general's valor and spirit, so they determine to entice him from his camp under various specious pretexts, and then, once he is completely in their power, to have him executed or assassinated. With this object in view they send a friendly letter asking him to attend the council, to accept a regular commission, and to raise new forces. On his way to the town Bacon is attacked by an ambush of soldiers, whom he beats off with the help of one of his lieutenants, Fearless, backed by Lieutenant Daring and a troop of his own men, who capture Whimsy and Whiff, two very prominent justices, instigators of the plot. He accordingly appears before the council with a couple of prisoners. The populace, who are all for their hero, realizing the treachery, raise a riot, and throw the councillors into a state of the utmost confusion and alarm. So he's basically justified in uh, going up to the council with an armed mob because they tried to trap him first, um, which is like a very like look what you made me do um, oh, yeah. uh, sort of moment. Uh, That's which is, very much his vibe throughout. He's always like, "Oh, I, I really don't want to have to go to war with you, but you just yes. you've left me no choice." Yes, and that is, I think that's the, that's why I was very big on the Taylor Swift's Look What You Made Me Do is about fascism. But um, <laughs> uh, we'll continue here. They spur themselves to action, however, and under the leadership of Colonel Wellman, Deputy Governor, proceed to take the field against Bacon, who is declared an open and lawless rebel. When he appears the soldiers, nonetheless, join themselves to their hero, and as at the same moment news is brought that the Indians have risen and are attacking the town, Bacon is induced to lead the troops against the foe, and in a pitched battle Cavernio is slain. That night whilst his army is reveling after their victory the council and their party with infamous treachery suddenly attack the camp. There are further skirmishes with a remnant of the Indian fugitives, and in one of these frays Bacon accidentally wounds Seymournia, who is flying disguised in man's attire. He recognizes her voice, and she sinks. This brings us back to the very first episode of Literary Hangover and James Fenmore Cooper's The Spy. Um, obsessed with disguises, like back then. <laughs> Just like a disguise and accidental killing and discovery of the disguise after the killing. Like, 
I, I think that's, um, I mean, it, I think it makes a lot of sense in plays, really, right? Because you have actors that try on different costumes anyway. Why don't you just incorporate that into the, uh, into the play itself? Well, also the idea that, like, you know, like, the audience immediately knows, like, what actor is what. But mm-hmm. it's like so you like knowing information, irony. but the character's not. Yeah, exactly. Being like, like, don't you know that that's, like, like it's, it's a oh. woman. She's just dressed as a guy. <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, oh, and what's that thing that during the Restoration, Charles II said women have to play women's parts? This is yes. in the, because yeah. men were writing it too body for w- them themselves playing the parts of women. But it backfired, I think, because then women. I read something uh, that was talking about how women were then able to be sexualized in a much more like vivid way, right? Because they could be they could be like dressed properly, you know? Oh man. That must've been big for the uh, teenage boys at the must globe. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. Into his arms to die. As he is weeping over her body, fearless rushes in with drawn sword, shouting that the day is all but lost. Bacon, his mistress dead, deeming that his men are overcome by the attack from the town and that he will himself be captured takes poison which he carries concealed in the pommel of his sword, whilst Daring and his soldiers are heard shouting victory. Victory. There's the whole, oh no, you drank poison and you shouldn't have thing. Yeah. Um, pommel poison. Very heroic. Yeah. Um, so let's skip a little bit forward here. The source and theatrical history aren't too reliable, so I think we're going to skip those. Unless you guys have anything uh, to say about them. Mm-mm. But uh, it is very inaccurate and very pro-Bacon, um, I think. Yeah, it really um, erases the whole idea of him leading a movement as well. Like, there's no populism, really, in this play. Right. He's he's described as a hero in what we just heard, and that's accurate. Like, he inspires people to think, to kind of admire him, but he's not really leading a movement he's just like a singular figure like the maori reading said Mm -hmm. that is the weird thing is it's like when the council is like they're deeply threatened by bacon and and the the bacon of this universe and it's like what exactly is the threat i mean there yeah there is like vague uh notions that he's popular but it's almost like he's like a, like a character, like an archetypal character that you're assuming like the same, like he's like a Caesar character and you're just assuming that like Caesar and Gaul. So it's like, yeah, that would be really threatening, but like the dynamics are completely different. Well, he's also like the clear moral superior, you know, the council are like a bunch of drunkards. They drink a big bowl of punch every time they meet and, He's given really, like, good lines for that. Like, I'm this, how can I stand to my country? Like, that sort of stuff, yeah. Um, And, you know, the other thing about, like, the movement is they all call the, uh, like, Rabble is the character in this, right? Like, that's, that's, that's the... That's the demos here. It's the rabble. So you really see Ben's um, politics there. Uh, And I think, and how, like, Bacon isn't necessarily at odds with them. Um, she also uses the word rabble to describe both Bacon's followers and at the end, the loyalists, like they can both be rabbles. Mm-hmm. They both behave that way. So it's not like, yeah, she doesn't draw attention to his particular form of rebellion, I think. Right. 
All right, let's uh, get to Dryden's prologue here. Prologue by Mr. Dryden. Heaven save yet, gallants, and this hopeful age. Why are welcome to the downfall of the stage? The fools have labored long in their vocation. Okay, I'm just going to I'm going to read this instead. <laughs> um, prologue by Mr. Dryden. Heaven save ye gallants and this hopeful age, ye are welcome to the downfall of the stage. The fools have labored long in their vocation, and vice the manufacture of the nation, or stocks the town so much and thrives so well, that fops and knaves grow drugs and will not sell. In vain our wares on theaters are shown, when each has a plantation of his own. His cruise ne'er fails, for whatsoever he spends, there's still God's plenty for himself and friends." Damn, it's it's very idealistic, as you can see. Uh, should men be rated by poetic rules, Lord, what a pole would there be raised from fools? Meantime, poor wit prohibited must lie, as if twere made some French commodity. Fools you will have, and raised a vast expense, and yet as soon as seen they give offense. Time was when none could cry that oaf was me, but now you strive about your pedigree. Bobble and cap no sooner are thrown down, but there's a muss of more than half the town. Each one will challenge a child's part at least, a sign the family is well increased. Of foreign cattle there's no longer need when we're supplied so fast with English breed. While flourish countrymen drink, swear, roar, and let every freeborn subject keep his whore. And wandering in the wilderness about, at end of 40 years, not wear her out. Jesus. Yeah. God. <laughs> Uh, but when you see this, but when you see these pictures, let none dare to own beyond a limb or single share for where the punk is common. He's a sot who needs will father what the parish got. I mean, it's kind of a go West young man. Uh, don't you think, uh, or what, how do you guys read that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's tough. I, yeah, I do agree. I think it's like, like throw your heart in front of you and like run to catch it is like a uh, summation of what that's trying to say. It's a, it's just an interesting, like it reminded me of that, like uh, the American, it's weird to see British people looking at colonialization as like an outlet already. Um, as a what? An outlet for like, I don't know, you go over there and grow drugs. Uh, I don't know. Um just like a way of like releasing like excess energy. It's like, or if you've like bottomed out here, it's like, just go, go out yeah. there and like, and just like start over, which I think that's like a major theme of this play of like, of trying to deal with those contradictions and that mess of like, all right, well, we don't have any like, uh, like unity, um, of like purpose in place like we do in, um, England. And now like, how do we deal with that? Yeah. And I also like, you know, I've, been watching Alias Grace, uh, mm-hmm. and then also watch The Color Purple, and how both of those are about the sort of sexual, almost sex trafficking element of bondage and servitude, mm-hmm. um, and patriarchy. And I, I like it once again. This is in Orinoco as well, but um, Ben includes that part of in here relatively um, um, explicitly. So yeah, let's get to the actual poem. We don't need to go. We're, we're going to perform it uh, unabridged. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, yeah let's just kind of go through it fairly quickly here Uh, act one scene one 
a room with several tables. We have Hazard who enters, who's sort of like the, you guys would say, he's sort of like one of the protagonist characters or like the audience stand-in characters. Yeah, yeah, the closest thing to an audience surrogate, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he arrives, and there's a boy, Jack, that tells him he's in Jamestown and that he's at Mrs. Flirt's house, um, which is another, like, the sex element of these, like, there's, oh, I forgot one thing. I'm sorry. There's one quote I needed to read. Good wives, nasty wenches, and nasty wenches, and anxious patriarchs, by uh, Kathleen Brown. This is about widows. Just one paragraph here. Unregulated marriage threatened family estates and rights to the labor of maidservants, but it also undermined Virginia's fragile class hierarchy by providing opportunities for immigrants of low social origins to begin their lives in Virginia with a house, a wife, land, servants, livestock, and sometimes a small fortune. Samuel Matthews, who later enjoyed a brief tenure as governor of Virginia, amassed many, thousand, amassed many of his considerable holdings through a fortunate marriage to the widow of Abraham Piercy. Uh, marriage to Sarah Thoroughgood, widow of a Norfolk progenitor, Adam Thoroughgood, similarly enhanced the estates of Captain John Gookin and Francis Yeardley. William Fitzhugh, Theodor, Theodoric Bland, John Washington, John Washington, <clears throat> George... Mm-hmm. Um, Nicholas Spencer and Thomas Chamberlain were among the hundreds of other men throughout the 17th century who secured local prominence with the help of a propitious match. Although most men could not hope to rise far, rise as far in the world through marriage as Matthews or a Fitzhugh, a wise choice might have allowed a laborer or a tenant to improve his lot. In a colony in which men often died before their younger wives, the opportunities to marry widows represented a real threat to class distinctions not so easily brooked in England. The ease with which a man could pass as a respectable planter once married, moreover, made the regulation of marriage a crucial uh, importance to the wealthy planters who dominated the colonial, the council and assembly. Um, so yeah, like, widows are basically, and it's explicit. Uh, we'll get to it a bit later, but explicit that they're a commodity. Uh, oh yeah, there's the quote from Ranta where she says, "We rich widows are the best commodity this country affords." And so it comes here, and they're immediately talking. Um, friendly arrives at Flirt's house, starts telling uh, Hazard about, "Hey, you got to shack up with this Ranter because she's got a lot of cash because her, you know, husband just died." And also, Sherlove, uh, Madam Sherlove, also has a husband who's on door- death's door in England, and he's probably not coming back. So you can maybe. Uh, what is the line here? You could basically, something to the effect of uh, even if you don't actually marry her, you can just lay with her. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. If thou canst not marry her, thou mayst lie with her. And yeah. the younger brother may pick out a pretty livelihood here that way. <laughs> so he could basically become a, a, a kept man. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing thing. You should go to Virginia, be a kept man, have a tobacco plantation. Uh, then we get to. Uh, so they get done talking about, um, you know, which women they should check up with for economic advantage. And uh, Friendly starts to hazard about the problems in the colony. Uh, says, uh, at this time, the Indians, by our ill management of trade, whom we have armed against ourselves. So guns getting in Native Americans' hands is a fixation here as well as it is in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Uh, very frequently make war upon us with our weapons, with our own weapons. Uh, though often coming by the worst, they are forced to make peace with us again. And so Hazard's talk, they, so they talk about that. So Hazard says, I heard, I heard about this. The governor's on his way, so hopefully we'll be 
uh, all you know as it's like he's like he, he has all the qualities of a, a gallant man besides he is nobly born which is really the important thing mm-hmm. and friendly says one of the more significant lines here this country wants nothing but to be peopled with a well-born race to make it one of the best colonies in the world but for want of a governor we are ruled by a council some of whom again berkeley did exist but he's omitted from here uh, who having acquired great estates are now become your honor and right worshipful and to possess all places of authority. There are amongst them some honest gentlemen who now begin to take upon them and manage affairs as they ought to be. Yeah, so that, but that, like, this country wants to be peopled with a well-born race is um, uh, very... As opposed uh, to criminals from, exactly. from London. <laughs> yeah, and, like, that's, uh, as in the parts of the preface that we didn't really read, there's a letter to Madame Weldon that's about, yeah, these are all new gators and uh, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and I think it's like Afro-Ben trying to like set the scene that like currently in colonial America, it's a mess. Like it's like try to imagine a world as less ordered and perfect as the one that you're currently living in, you know, the uh, Restoration England citizen and try to understand that there's nothing that is keeping these people together outside of like avarice and greed. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, then Dullman, Timorous, and Boozer come in. Uh, they're basically the um, deep state of uh, of Virginia here. They get in a conflict with Hazard. We'll skip over that. Act 1, scene 2 is at the council table. Enter Wellman Downright. And these are the two, like, sort of, they're the Berkeley stand-ins. Uh, and th- th- like we said earlier, they don't really, like, get satired too, or satirized too much. They're kind of okay, but... Um, Dunce, Whimsy, and Whiff are not their officers. Um, Dunce says Bacon's worried more about the Indians than, uh, or Bacon is worried more about his love for Smyrna, basically, than protection of people. Uh, and so they plan to entrap him. Uh, they talk about, yeah, we're going to hang a general, which is, you know, that's, you could say some pretty wild shit uh, if the king w- would let you in these um, theaters, like talking about just hanging generals. If you talk <laughs> about that sort of stuff now, um, you might get a call from an uh, investigative body um, in, in here. Also, this line in that scene where I think Whimsy says, um, I'm afraid that under pretense of killing all the Indians, he means to murder us, lie with our wives and hang up our little children and make himself lord and king. I just love how like totally inverted that is. When you look at the historical record, it's like he's just using using massacring the Indians as an excuse, guys. That's a ruse. Right. Yeah, that that line, like, definitely. I think that was like the first line to like catch me while I was reading. Was like, that's one of the most insane things I've ever read. But mm-hmm. also, like, totally relatable. Be like, well, you know, like this genocide is just a way to get to us, the people right. with power, which is completely fucked. And it's like, what? And it's such what a throwaway concept. Like, oh, he's just killing Indians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, just, yeah, just shows, I mean, she, like, as a dramatist, like, nails Native Americans' place, like, in the uh, English mind at this moment, or like, the colonizer's mind, which is, like, window dressing for their own, like, personal hangups. Oh, Totally. I, I also want to say just at this point that all these characters that are being introduced, like Hazard, Timorous, Dolman, Boozer, all these clowns, um, they they are all confidence men in that kind of like Melvillian tradition, I think, or like proto-Melvillian um, American tricksters in the making. Like, and in the scene before, they all kind of accuse each other 
It reminds me of that Spider-Man meme where they're all like uh, pointing at each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's like, well, you, you know, you were, uh, I heard that back in England you did this and you did that. And it just turns out they're all crooks, basically, who've come to make a fresh start and marry widows if possible. Yeah. Um, so we meet one of the uh, wi- widows in waiting, um, Madame Sherlove, in Act One, Scene Three. We go to Sherlove's house. Um, we we meet Widow Ranter here herself. Uh, the boy doesn't know her. The Ranter is annoyed about that because he's new. Uh, the Ranter calls him a thief uh, um, and talks about how she really needs to smoke. We really see a lot of. I'm going to page two forty one here. And uh, Chrysant. Uh, Chrysant is another, uh, I think, woman. Is she a widow or I'm not sure. Uh, Is she Downright's daughter? Yeah, daughter of Downright. Yeah. Downright. Yeah, I'm just going to keep that up. Yeah, so uh, Chrysant and uh, and the widow Ranter are talking and talking about men. Uh, Ranter says, hey, Gad, I'll warrant for Friendly's resolution. What though... His fortune may not be answerable to yours. We are bound to help one another. Here, boy, some pipes and a punch, uh, some pipes and a bowl of punch. You know my humor, madam. I must smoke and drink in the morning, or I'm mawkish all day. And Sherlock says, "But you, but will you drink punch in the morning?" And Ranter says, "Punch, tis my morning's draft, my table drink, my treat, my regalio, my everything. Ah, my dear Sherlock, if thou would uh, but refresh and cheer thy heart with punch in the morning." That would not look at this cloudy every day. So it's been mentioned by a bunch of scholars that this is uh, the closest character that Ben gets to the sort of female libertine. And she's allowed to do that in America, basically. And mm-hmm. another convention that the ranter, the ranter is never humbled back to her position at the end of this. She retains her position. Um, so this is, this is the libertine ranter basically living these, uh, I guess, sort of aristocratic um, freewheeling lifestyle and you see a bit of ben's feminism in that too as well yes exactly yeah and then she later she comes and uh, hazard enters and rancher says come sir will you smoke a pipe hazard says i never do madam rancher says oh fie upon it you must learn then we can all smoke here tis a part of good breeding (laughs) right this is the (laughs) this is the upside down well well what cargo what goods have ye any points lace rich stuffs jewels if you have, I'll be your chauffeur. Um, yeah, so. Um. She's also symbolic of the rising mercantile class as well, isn't mm-hmm. she? And, yeah. like, I think that's very much contrasted with Simonia and Bacon as these aristocratic figures who aren't concerned with material gain. They're just thinking about love and noble ideas and honor. Yeah, and. So on 242, we get to this commodity quote that we uh, talked about earlier. Mm. Um, Oh, yeah, this is right after this uh, discussion with Hazard that we were just talking about. Hazard says, I've already heard of you, madame. And Ranter says, what? You are like all the young fellows. The first thing they do when they come to a strange place is to inquire what fortunes there are. Hazard says, "Uh, madam, I had no such ambition, even though we know in the first meeting he does. Ranter, gad, then you're a fool, sir, but come, my service to you, we rich widows are the best commodity this country affords, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, we find out about how Sherlove's husband is sick in England. Uh, 
they talk, the ranter is pretty callous about this whole discussion. She tells Sherlove that her husband died at a really good time uh, and got, so she was managed uh, to get 50,000 pounds out of it. Uh, they discuss a Lieutenant Daring a little bit. Uh, Hazard enters with a letter for Sherlove. Ranter pressures him to smoke. Yeah, we already talked about that. And then uh, Chrysanthes says uh, Bacon is, uh, it's, a, it's a shame that he's doing noble actions that are criminal for the want of law. So we get that sort of, you know, tension and they drink and feast. Moving on to act two, we meet Bacon. We're uh, act two, scene one at a pavilion, sort of an Indian sort of temp, um, King Hall type of thing. And, and uh, Indian monarchs are in state. Um, Smyrnia and Bacon is there. He says, on page 245, one of the um, OG, one of the OG founding father quotes that you could ever have. The ki- so he's arguing, he's talking with the queen and the king, and he has a thing for the queen. And uh, the king says to him, "For your part, sir, you've been so noble that I repent the fatal difference that makes us meet in arms." The king apparently was taught to shoot a bow by Bacon. This is just this ridiculousness. Um, yeah. Uh, Yet though I'm young, I'm sensible of injuries, and oft have heard my grandsire say that we were monarchs once of all this spacious world, till you and unknown people landing here, distressed and ruined by destructive storms, of using all our charitable hospitality, usurped our right and made your friends your slaves. Now that's exactly like the way we understand it kind of now. In 1688, they knew that. So, um, mm. Or at least could put it in the mouths of a character. Uh, definitely like a direct a direct echo of um shakespeare's the tempest which would have been one of his last plays mm-hmm. in that right. same century which is i mean you know most scholars would now say it's like an early understanding of the new world which is just like a ship that happened to be shipwrecked on this place and like well huh, while we're here might as well just run the place we should do the tempest actually well, yeah yeah um and then Bacon uh, responds to this by saying, I will not justify the ingratitude of my forefathers, but finding here my inheritance, I am resolved still to maintain it so, and by my sword, which first cut out my portion, defend each inch of land with my last drop of blood. Now, I wrote the note here, fascism equals maintaining hierarchies through force. Uh, this is I was like, going to say that, that, go ahead. That, that you can find that a direct quote in uh, the comments section of... Um, uh, the case for reparations, Atlantic <laughs> peace in the Atlantic. Just literally any comment is just like, oh, I see what you're saying, but I right. will be defending this land with my sword. So yeah, it also uh, reminds me our good friend uh, Hollinsworth. Remember when he talks about women? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like, I will knock that shit down. Um, don't even think. Yeah. About it. Um, and uh, the queen responds uh, to this menacing threat by saying, even his threats have charms that please the heart. So, yeah, if I was a king, I'd be getting a bit worried about that. Um, Dunce gives Bacon the letter then uh, to trap him, basically. Uh, Bacon flirts with the queen. Uh, she's swooning. Uh, act two, scene two, the widow Ranter's hall. Sherlove uh, enters, followed by two Negroes fanning her and Hazard. Now, we... I've mentioned earlier that uh, there were a small number of actually like African-American slaves that, I mean, after Bacon's rebellion, that goes up very fast. But prior to then, it was basically if you were an elite aristocrat with uh, global connections. So enter Sherlock, uh, followed by two Negroes fanning her and hazard. So that Ben has that detail in there, which is interesting. 
a hazard um says he's leaving sure love says she's going to send him a love letter he says um he's never been in love they do some venereal jokes disease jokes hazard says he already loves her uh anyway some ba- a bagpiper comes in followed by two negroes with a, a bowl of punch bowls of punch are really big in this we'll get to uh another mm-hmm. instance later there's some dancing and uh some fighting basically <laughs> um uh basically dolman uh, gets worried for say, somebody suggesting that he hurts a rumor about him, which is this happens a lot. Like, if doesn't someone call his wife a whore or something? Well, we'll get to that. That's very funny. The court scene, which I think. Oh was, no, that's not this bit. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so we'll go to Act Two, Scene Three, which is on the savanna, which is interesting to call see S E V A N A, but like a sav- American savanna. Yeah. That word seems very Africanized. Um, uh, whimsy whiff and boozer come waiting to ambush they'd smoke which probably isn't the best thing to do if you're going to do an ambush but anyway uh, bacon gets captured but then he gets freed by daring act two scene four we go to the council table colonel wellman enters downright dullman also there bacon approaches uh pissed off because the treacheries just happened so now that gives him right to uh, march on jamestown the rabble are back he does tell the rabble to back off though and um Bacon says, this is one of those, like, this. he's a moralizer here. Should I stand by and see my country ruined, my king dishonored, and his subjects murdered, hear the sad cries of widows and orphans? You heard it loud, but gave no pitying care to it. I feel like Sebastian Gorka. Um, Until the war and massacre was brought to my own door, my flocks and herds surprised, I bore it all with patience. Is it unlawful to defend myself against a thief that breaks down my doors? <sighs> Yeah, time. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's horrified that this is like the heroic speech, and the crowd should be like, "Yeah, get him!" Yeah, um, yeah, human beings, man. Uh, mm-hmm. Moving on to uh, Act Three, Scene One. Uh, this is the country court. Now, this is a funny scene. I really like this scene a lot. Um, they're all worried about bacon coming, but uh, they come out with a punch bowl. I need to explain this. Um, because that's what they need to do with. But the first motion is we should get a bigger punch bowl, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, because some, I mean, sometimes it runs out. So, <laughs> which you know. I think you need to get us a bigger punch bowl for literary. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Timorous and Dullman take their places on a long bench and placed behind the table. Then Boozer and two or three more who seat themselves. Then eager, um, then enter two bearing a punch, bo- a bowl of punch and a great ladle or two in it. The rest of the stage being filled with people. Whiff says, "Brothers, it hath often been moved at the bench that a new punch bowl should be provided and one of a larger circumference. When the bench sits late about weighty affairs, oftentimes the bowl is emptied." Everyone agrees. Um, uh, it's a good motion click set it down then they talk about how boozer is too drunk to be a judge and he's basically like fine i'll just be a lawyer then uh then we have uh the case we we're talking about earlier of a uh, scandala magnatum or libel oh, yeah. the petition this is uh, the clerk says the petition of uh captain thomas whiff showeth that whereas gilbert grubb calls his worship's wife and whiff whore and said he would prove it <laughs> <laughs> said, uh, your petitioner desires the worshipful bench to take it into consideration and your petitioner shall ever pray etc here's two witnesses have made the affidavit 
have made affidavit viva voce, which means by, by voice, I'm just going to guess, and like your worships. And then Grub gets called. Grub says, why it ain't like your worship? Uh, my wife invited some neighbors. This is interesting, like the society. Um, we get a little glimpse of here. My wife invited some neighbors' wives to drink a keg of cider. Now your worship's wife, Madam Whiff, being there fuddled, uh, would have thrust me outdoors and bid me go to my old whore, Madam Whimsy, meaning your worship's wife. So a different uh, judge's <laughs> wife is being invoked here. <laughs> Wim says, ha, my wife called a whore. She's a jade and I'll arrest her husband here um, uh, in action of debts. And Timorous says, Gadzer, she's no better than she should be, I warrant her. Whiff says, looky, brother Whimsy, be patient. You know the humor of my Nancy uh, when she's drunk. But when she's sober, she's a civil person and she'll ask your pardon. Uh, and then Whimsy says, well, if she asks her pardon, then I'm done with you. But then they turn back to Grub. Uh, Grub says, I being very angry said, indeed, I would prove her a greater whore than Madam Whimsy, which is a bit salty. Uh, the, the clerk says, and like your worship, he confesses the words in open court. Grub says, why ain't like your worships? She has two bastards. I'll prove it. And then Whiff says uh, to her defense, says, Sarah, Sarah, that was when she was a maid. Not since I married her. My marrying her made her honest. And uh, so Dolman says, let there be an order of court to sue him for scandal and magnatum. So he loses, Grub loses that suit there. So, yeah, I think, I don't know. I thought that was a pretty funny um, mm. little thing. I want to bring in just very briefly, Wilcom Washburn. Uh, he, we cited him last time, but he has a funny note on alcohol here and the governor and the rebel. So the, this is the commissioners after the rebellion uh, and kind of scolding the colonists. The commissioners urge that the re- unreasonable sort of Virginians should understand their own security and interest and to sit down and satisfy that they can quietly enjoy so large and fair a portion of their possessions as now they do enough and more than they either will or can ever employ or cultivate to profit and not still covet and seek to deprive them, the Indians of more out of mere itch of luxury rather than any real lack of it which shames us and makes us become a reproach and byword to those moral havens. And then uh, Washman writes, the commissioners further recommended a reduction in the salaries paid Burgesses and the withdrawal of their liquor allowance in order to lessen the tax burden on the country. Uh, committee chairmen were urged to write down their own reports to save the expense to clerks. So literally the commissioners were like, you guys are drinking too much. And then the final act of uh, scene three here is back out on the Savannah. Uh, Enter Wellman, downright boozer officers, uh, Hazard and Dunst join. They're basically talking about how can we take back Bacon. They talk about him being feared of siding with Indians, which of course he wouldn't because he boasted about in real life not being able to tell the difference between friendly and unfriendly ones. Uh, <laughs> nobody uh, wants to actually fight of the, the men. And then a seaman comes, says Bacon has seized the Bay ships, uh, but we can get him back. The uh, Wim and Timorous think it's a trap. Isn't and, that one of the other clues to how we know she had that source, Matt? Oh, yes, exactly right. Yeah. The uh, the season of the ships was the third yeah. detail that was only publicly or only available in the Royal Commissioner's report. And so they get kind of scared. They think it's a trap. So then they get into discussions about, like, is Killian really okay? Maybe we shouldn't actually <laughs> murder people, which is a good time for that. Uh, they get excited. Uh, Wellman and etc are able to get people to get excited to confront bacon and then bacon arrives and he's like what do you got to say to me now <laughs> um and he wins the crowd uh and then on 277 he orders the crowd this is the other detail uh that was in the commissioner's report 
but not in the public ones, that he ordered the uh, town to be burned. But in this version, he takes it back. Um, Bacon says, Oh, ingratitude, burn, burn the treacherous town, fire it immediately. Uh, Wim and Whiff uh, say they'll obey him. Uh, we'll make a bonfire on it and drink your, drink your honor's health. And then Bacon says, Yet hold, my revenge shall be more merciful, uh, or that all the women of rank shall be seized. Oh, this is, and he, the commission knew that he seized the women. Mm. Um, I ordered that all the women of rank shall be seized and brought to my camp. I'll make their husbands pay their ransoms dearly. They'd rather have their hearts bleed than their purses. Uh, and he says, on pain of death, treat them with all respect. In real life, he uses them as human shields. So again, Ben is making Bacon look less of a rogue than he really was. Um, that was the detail in the Ebenezer Cook poem where there was a suggestion that the women might have all slept with Bacon. Yes. In the yeah. black tent. <laughs> yeah, what else were they doing up there? Once they, uh, they must uh, have done something. Yeah. I, I, could you really trust your wife if that happened? I know I couldn't. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then Madame Sherlock was down for it, though. She says, if seizing us, sir, can advance your honor or be of any use considerable to you, I should be proud of such a slavery. Oh. Yeah, so... Um, yes. Yeah. Those are like people being like, yes, I will go to a public place right now for you, Mr. Trump. That's awesome. Totally. Oh, God. Yeah. So, uh, and that ends uh, Act... Uh, Act three there. Yeah. So act four opens with like, uh, there's an Indian, uh, or I, I mean, it's Indian in the play, but there's like an Indian ritual where this prophecy is, is read out and, um, that the King is, it's, it's going to be like the last war, uh, between native Americans and the colonists and that the King is definitely going to win. And bacon is the key to fulfilling this. The queen has an aside with him as she hears the prophecy and she thinks that he may have misread it and explains that Bacon is in love with her, which is like, you know, that is a lot for a, a monarch to hear <laughs> in, in that moment. Uh, but he plays it rather chill, and he ignores her and prepares for battle, basically. King. Total yeah, king, king shit. <laughs> Get ready for battle. Yeah, he's like, he's like, he's in love with you? Well, that's uh, ridiculous. I'm Anyways, not even going to... See you later. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. address that. I'm not going to respond to that. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> so uh, the king and queen kiss, and um, the king promises victory and then departs, and she feels like completely like adrift in this moment. The second scene is during the battle. Bacon and the, the king, they meet each other on the battlefield, and Bacon bests him in, in mortal combat. And Well, he taught him everything he knew, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, that's something that, like, I mean, besides teaching him how to use bow and arrow, I, it wasn't clear to me, but if we can go back actually to when the uh, Bacon is first talking to the queen, is is it suggested that he is literally teaching her what love is? Or she's like, <laughs> I don't even know what this is and I've learned it from you. Or is it like all metaphorical? I don't but, know. Yeah, but it seems but, like it may be suggesting that. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Sorry. I, I, no, I totally think that's, I, I'm not sure about that. But now that you mentioned that, I think there is some like, Maybe he civilized her. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is like, I mean, yeah, uh, fucked. But also, like, <laughs> there's something, <laughs> there's something quite sweet in that, like, the queen has learned what love is, and then like gives the king this like loving embrace before he goes to like get screwed. Which is like, I know what love is, and I'm about to, I like really feel for you, and you have no idea uh, mm. what you're doing. 
Yeah. Um, but anyways, so so Bacon and the king fight. King loses, and then the king basically admits to himself that the queen was right about everything. And Bacon is really distraught by this because they're friends, and he likens himself to um, a killer of Caesar uh to brutus basically and then he hears word that uh the queen and and all the uh, native american followers are you know they're running for their lives and they're taking over this temple as a sanctuary and the colonists are going to pursue them and as soon as bacon hears this he's like well i've got to he takes his men and like to go stop that uh from happening and then while this is going on the widow ranter has disguised herself as a man uh and pretends to be a suitor uh the -hmm. widow uh, is going after the person who's qu- currently in love with her paramour, uh, who's Bacon's lieutenant, and so uh, and is taken. Uh, is it? How do you even pronounce her name? I can never do it. It's like Sim- Crisanti. Simonia? Oh, Crisant. Yeah, I say Crisanti. I just been saying Crisant in my head as I read Crissant. it. Ashanti. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which you know, as far as love goes, I get it. Uh, <laughs> And is uh, trying to win her love. And there's a, there's a duel that takes place. And there's obviously a lot of like playing to the audience of like, she's a, she's a widow. <laughs> well, she's this like kind of errant knight. That's uh, kind of like a Don Quixote type uh, person mm. that's like playing against the audience and the characters on stage. Oh, but let's talk about the fact that um, when Ranta and Daring get together mm-hmm. and Daring is the guy that Ranta has been wanting for mm-hmm. a long time. Um, and he's the lieutenant of uh, Bacon. He, that's it. He says, give me thy hand, widow. I am thine. And so entirely, I will never be drunk out of thy company. <laughs> oh, yes. I thought that was funny. <laughs> what a pledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is, that's huge. I mean. I mean, that's kind of what you want, you know. That's like Pence. That's like Pence. His <laughs> mother. Pence shit. <laughs> Um, and then he's like and and she says um, well he's really desperate to get married there and then and she's like no let's wait till the war ends and then he says no nay pretty take me in the humour while thy breeches are on for I never liked thee half so well in petticoats he's kind of kinky he wants to marry her in her breeches oh yeah that rules like that's such a like, like that's such a subversion of like the the crossing Rope, especially at that time to be like yeah. eventually there's like the the reveal right like that's like the big payoff is like actually i'm a woman check out this dress yeah. uh whereas like her paramour is like you know what you look kind of uh, hot in pants <laughs> oh yeah you know i do like that joke that little bit on uh 291 where darren and ranter are talking um oh the innuendo yeah the innuendos here so uh okay so yeah um Darren says, uh, yes, when she's drunk, then she'll lavish all. Ranter says a pox on him, how he vexes me. Oh, so Ranter's kind of talking, saying aside. He's like involved in the discussion of herself. and yeah. Right. Okay, I get it. That's why I was confused. Okay. So yeah, talking about Ranter, uh, Darren says, when she's drunk, and sh- then she'll lavish all. She says a pox on him, how he vexes me. Then such a tongue, Darren says, she'll rail and smoke till she choke again. Then six gallons of punch hardly recovers her. And never but then is she good natured. Ranch says, I must lay on him. Darren says, there's not a blockhead in the whole country. There's not a blockhead in the country that is not. And Ranch says, what? And then it says, been drunk with her, which is like, <laughs> and then Ranch says, I thought you had meant something else, sir, which is like, that is a joke that's still in scripts today. Like, I thought you were going to say something else. Um, Actually. Yeah. All right. So 
Um, yeah, I will never be drunk out of the company. That is funny. All right, Act Four, great. Or Act Five, great. Act Five, yeah. Oh, wait. Sorry, I, have, I do have. If we're doing good lines, I have one line left, or one line that I also want to highlight, which is like at, they're at this like battle, and then the soldiers talking about like you know what what he has to lose, you know, and he says, uh, "I say, sir, I hope my courage was never in dispute, but sir, I'm going to marry Colonel Downright's daughter here, and should I be slain in this battle, twould break her heart." Besides, sir, I should lose her fortune, yeah. which is like, it's like, there's two bad things going on. One, I'm in love with someone. So if I die, it's going to really suck for her because you're going to be heartbroken. Also, I'll be dead and I won't get her fortune, which also sucks. Yeah. That whole <laughs> bit about them. Like, why? So why did you sign up to do this if you don't actually want to fight? It's like, well, the honor and the money of it. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So Act 5 takes us to the Savannah in sight of the camp. Yeah, so we're at the Savannah. Um, Friendly, Hazard, and Boozer are on their way to attack Bacon's army with a group of men. They meet uh, Whiff and Timorous and the other councilmen clowns who are running away from Bacon. Um, and at some point in this scene, it, it's pretty chaotic, Act 5, actually, um, mm-hmm. but at some point the ladies get rescued from Bacon's camp. Um Bacon is told that the Indians have abducted the queen, Simonia, and he freaks out and says he's going to go and rescue her. Um, in scene two, the, the loyalists basically reunite with the ladies. Uh, and I'm just going to skip over that. Um, in scene three, we're in the woods and we're with the queen. She is disguised as a male Indian fighter, um, and this is, yeah, there's a little bit of historical uh, parallel here with um, Coco Koweski, who uh, did indeed spend 14 days uh, in the wilderness after Bacon, the historical Bacon, like decimated uh, her tribe. Yeah, I'll just talk That's about Coco. Yeah, the, the, basically the Coco Kowesque story is this. She was a Werewansqua, a hereditary chief of the Pamunkey Indians, and they were allies to the Berkeley government. Mm-hmm. In the run-up to this, uh, when everything's this started heating off with unfriendly Indian tribes in the run-up to the Bacon's Rebellion, she gets invited to the House of Burgess, and they want her to contribute more guides and soldiers. She, uh, to the House of Burgess, recounts a bunch of names and says, this X name, dead. This person, dead. Basically, like, I keep sending you men, and they end up dead, and I'm not feeling gratitude. So she gets done listing all these people's names. And this isn't Bacon doing this. This is the House of Burgesses. Mm-hmm. She gets done listing these names and that they died and that she's upset. And they says, okay, and who are you going to... Uh, <laughs> give us now (laughs) that's their response so like she was an ally to berkeley but they didn't treat her well at all right it was a complete exploitative relationship so fast forward to uh yeah what indians will you now contribute and then coca whiskey was mute to that fast forward to bacon uh he had they just looted a bunch of loyalist houses and pressure was building to uh move on the indians because uh, they're like, is this just going to be about going into rich people's houses? Because actually we wanted to murder Indians. Um, <laughs> and because uh, rich people were an uh, uh, important part of um, the early coalition for Bacon's Rebellion, as we mentioned earlier, it wasn't just poor people. And yeah. after this um, 
Yeah, right. So, and Bacon felt pressured uh, the entire time to say he's not a leveler. All right, so it was a bit. So they need to kill some Indians. It's rainy. It's raining a lot, and they actually blame that on the uh, Powawins of the Native Americans or their sorceries. Uh, so it's really rainy. So they decide not to go so far away to get the uh, enemy Indians. Uh, instead, they decide, well, the Pomongis are close, so let's just go yeah. kill them. Uh, Coco Koweski realizes that's what's happening, and they, they basically flee for a number of um, weeks. And eventually her camp is came upon by Bacon. She gets away, but you know all their stuff gets taken. She escapes. And, well, she's going to turn herself in immediately. And she comes across the massacred body of another female a monkey and she's like okay i'm gonna go try to wait this out and she she what is she uh, uh the the uh, drumstick of a terrapin yeah um she survives on for 14 days this is what she told the commissioners um and uh, she eventually turns herself in the rest of a lot of her tribe gets captured and sold into slavery she's you know the, the uh royalty or whatever so she's given a bit more respect she outlives bacon uh, in fact, so after Bacon dies and the commissioners come back in uh, in 1677, she meets with them in May, uh, and she uh, the, she on behalf of the Pamunkeys accepts Charles II as the sovereign, but uh, gets the commission to confess that it was the violent intrusions of the colonists to blame for the you know the Bacon's rebellion. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, she actually deals with them. Um, uh, Apparently she then had a child with a white. Yeah, named Miss Betty, and we kind of lose tr- the the. Uh, um, I think the James D. Rice uh, book talks about how we kind of lose track of the her and the the tribal um, lineage after that. Um, yeah. She dies in eighteen or sixteen eighty seven, um, uh, around the time that uh, uh, Ben was going to write this. Uh, and yeah, the tribe kind of dies out, or at least I'm not sure if it survived after Mrs. Betty, but um, it wasn't in a good place when she died. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's Coca Koweski. Um, if I, I just want to bring up a few more things before I let you fit, ra- wrap this up, uh, Grace. But just to go to um, Jenny Hale's uh, uh, article, "The Widow Ranter and Royalist Culture in Colonial Virginia," um, talks about. Uh, um, Bacon's attitudes towards Native Americans that get um, obscured by Ben here. Um, a funny quick note is that she quotes, uh, does Hale, uh, Berkeley himself saying, none but those of the meanest quality and corruptest lives go to Virginia. Um, he was the governor. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but he said also that that's what Rome was made out of. Um, so everyone was still thinking about Rome. It was all Roman bros, as we've discussed um, at that time. But anyway, so uh, here's what... Um, Hale writes about Bacon. The historical Bacon was nothing less than xenophobic. In his manifesto on the rebellion, he proclaims his open and manifest aversion to all, uh, not only the foreign, not only the foreign, but the protected and darling Indians. He says, "I mean, this is just like stormfront shit." Um, the chief motivation for his revolt was to fight the Indians, whom he felt. Uh, Berkeley had protected and favored over the white colonists with bitter sarcasm. Bacon demanded now what greater guilt can, uh, 
what greater guilt can be than to oppose and endeavor the destruction of these honest, quiet neighbors of ours? Like, just a psycho. Um, twice in the historical record, he justified destruction of friendly as well as hostile tribes because, frankly, he found it impossible to tell the difference between them. And Bacon was as good as his word. He pursued both friendly and hostile Indians in his campaigns, hunting down and killing even the colony's allies, the Pamunkey Indians, 12 of whom the Queen of Pamunkey had pledged to Berkeley to assist the English against hostile Indians. Uh, Bacon's, so I guess she was mute, but then still pledged 12. Um, Bacon's strong support among the populace is proof that his, is proof that his attitudes were widely shared in a letter to his sister in England. Bacon's wife expressed some of the popular discontent with Berkeley's policy of inaction toward the Indians. Berkeley quote, let them daily do all the mischief they can. The governor so much their friend that he would not suffer anybody to hurt one of the Indians. I think her word xenophobic might not quite capture the. Yeah, it's 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 uh, genocidal, like race man- mania. <laughs> um, um, ben writes that removed from the conflict as they were, English citizens were likely uh, to be more offended uh, by Bacon's hatred of Indians than were most of his fellow Virginians. Ben diluted his bile, made his attacks a justifiable response, and went on with her play. Um, mm. I mean, I guess that's like, that is like one of the most interesting parts of this play is that her examination of Bacon is essentially like a whole cloth, whole cloth, like fabrication. It's like a quite like a uh, complex, interesting character, but has, I would say, I mean, outside of time and place has nothing to do with the historical Bacon. And she doesn't even get the time right because she gets the date yeah. of the rebellion right, but she puts it in seven, uh, 1670. Um, it's like, and like, so I've, the, the theory that I like that makes, is most happy in my sort of conspiratorial Thomas Pynchon brain, hmm. you know, is like the, the one where she's like trying to rewrite history and just, you don't, you don't want to completely obscure it. You just bend it into, into more favorable directions. Right, like if you're a propagandist, you have you. There's there's only a certain amount of raw material that exists, uh, and you want to use it because somebody's going to get there. But so you need to get there first, and then write it the way you want it to be written, and then you know everything else is just a secondary take on it. Well, it's not too dissimilar from the last. I mean, the last podcast we talked about Francis Bacon with, you know, I mean, with the hindsight of like Jefferson and the other founding fathers, how they're like, oh, this guy's us. And just completely excised him from the reality that he sprung up from. And we're like, yeah, he, he was a tax guy. He was really upset about taxes from uh, the crown or whatever the fuck. Right. Uh, which had, yeah, also, I mean, just as like as much uh, relation to reality as this play. So I guess like for Afro Ben, like he's like, oh, yeah, like uh, Bacon, like, yeah, he's a Tory. He's definitely a Tory guy, like kind of like a, an upstart a guy who likes class and and knows about... Um, uh, station and wants to make sure that everything is uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, think it's uh, it's kind of ironic that she, in this portrayal of Bacon, she actually prefigures that image of him, that legend of him as a noble patriot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like she she gets there before Jefferson, and it's it's really interesting. I mean, she's there. She's there twelve years after it happens with it. Yeah, I mean, she places it farther than that. She places it eighteen, but like the literal event happened not that long ago. And yeah, yeah like like she sets that. She's the first one there, as far as I know. I mean, like we, Cook is there after her, and he has the an entirely different take on um, Bacon. But I think um, 
I think there's a lot of truth to um, Ben's, besides the part about Safi and his uh, Indian hatred, um, I think Bacon was more the aristocratic, like I'm the, I should be the pre- pretender to the throne or something than the Democrat, right? Um, mm, just one yeah. f- final note on from Hale um, before we finish. Uh, she yeah. says, belonging to the proper class and upholding the proper order were extremely important to both Baconians and Berkeleyites, to rebels and royalists, to everyone whose voice appears in the records. These views of proper order evident in Widow Ranter and Ben's other plays, as well as in the historical records of Bacon's rebellion, were remarkably persistent. On the brink of the American Revolution, Virginia playwright Robert Munford expressed strikingly similar views of, in his political farce, The Candidates, in which two educated, well-burned office holders triumph decidedly over two unfit challengers, coxcombs and jockeys who impose themselves upon men of learning. Uh, she, and she finishes, clearly the values of honor, hierarchy, and loyalty to the king were as important to Ben and to the public she addressed in the many places she populated with Tory heroes as to the colonial Virginians. Uh, Bacon, dashing, young, and well-born, was a perfect Tory hero. Even if he was a rebel, he was committed to the royalist hierarchy Ben spent her writing career promoting. The country on the brink of realization in the widow rancher at last supplied with the well-born race needed to make it one of the best colonies in the world would have met with the approval of Ben's Bacon, and no doubt with that of the historical Bacon as well. Um, yeah, Do we have more of the summary, or did we... Yeah, just so to finish up Act 5 real quick. um, So we're in the forest with the queen. She's disguised. Uh, She reveals to her companion that she's been in love with Bacon since she was 12 years old and that her marriage to the king was, you know, kind of reluctant. Right. Uh, Crazy. (laughs) Bacon Bacon eventually discovers her, comes across her, and uh, does not recognize her. And there's a fight, and he wounds her. Um, and as she she's dying, they have a tragic recognition scene, a classic component of uh, kind of Shakespearean tragedy. Um, and Bacon realizes that he's mortally wounded his love and becomes suicidal before fleeing the scene. Um, before that, I just want to say he is just murdering everybody. He's, yeah. he's like, yeah, huzzah, yeah. huzzah, just crushing it. And then, like, whoops. Like yeah. it's a thing where like yeah you like you murder thirty people and then like one of them in a movie like I'm thinking like a Tarantino type movie is yeah the queen that you actually loved you should have been less should have been less indiscriminate in your massacring basically <laughs> just slightly yeah. though but then he wouldn't be able to complete his uh, character arc as a tragic hero so. right. exactly it's Oedipal in nature <laughs> this is all very formal. <laughs> Uh, so he runs away her body's taken away the loyalists pursue him and that takes us into scene 4 where Bacon commits ritual suicide he drinks poison that he's stored in the pommel of his sword compares himself to Hannibal very modestly um, and (laughs) says that he and someone's like why are you doing this why are you going to die and he says I don't want to be a public spectacle upon the common theatre of death which I thought was very interesting. It made me think about Orinoco with that gruesome, grisly execution scene at the uh, end. Interesting. It's just mm-hmm. totally no holds barred and like pure theater, pure spectacle kind of torture porn. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so here you've got Bacon saying, I don't want that fate. And it's, I, it also made me think of Charles I and the execution. Like mm-hmm. he doesn't want to be 
uh, you know, sent to the gallows. Well, and it's interesting because the, the f- or ironic because the fate he actually, we all know the bloody flux, right? Like that's yeah, associated yeah. with this actual He shit fate. himself with lice today. Yeah, and <laughs> like to the point where Cook was making fun of it like, for like a whole like stanza in uh, his poem. So yeah, like he, he get, it's, it's poison from his own po- sword uh, this time, yeah. but in real life he, yeah, diaried himself to death. Lice. Um, while dying, he manages to be noble. He tells his men to make peace with the English council, says they're all great guys. Um, yeah. he, he also weirdly tells them to not, in future, don't forget your duty like I have done. And I was actually confused. Like, what duty is he speaking of that he feels he hasn't fulfilled? Yeah, is it to, like, get laid? Is it the erotic? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, what the hell is he talking about? You, you. This whole thing is like you not having your duty in order. Like, you, stop obsessing with the queen, man. It's you're very sp- strange. You're supposed to massacre all of them. Come on, get your head up. Get- no, I think. Yeah, I think that's right, though. I think it's like it's a question of station, right? Like his whole like like act of hubris in the nature of this play is that he went too far. The count like may have seen like a bunch of fuddy duddies but it's because they had to deal with shit that they're not supposed to deal with like everyone like they're the council and everyone is like a normal ass person and they're supposed to be able to like move on with their lives but there's this person who's breaking the natural order of things and that's uh bacon and it's like when his like that's his like dramatic flaw and that's like his uh catharsis is he's able to learn that he pushed he pushed it too far and like i don't know i guess like implicitly like you could say like the violence around him is his responsibility in that case because he broke all these like etiquette and social norms yeah interesting yeah and one one other one last thing he dennering kind of like gives him the closest thing to a eulogy that he's going to get and he says very wistfully, he that could have conquered all America. That's how he described him. And I thought that was just extremely prescient from Afroben, you know, thinking about yeah. the next two centuries of American history that would follow this. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's also like, if he'd only kept his eyes on the prize, he could have, he could have gone even further west. Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. It's he'd like, fall in love like a cock. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He is a cock. That's yeah. it. You could have taken California, but instead you fell in love with a woman. Idiot. Um, yeah. In the end, everyone gets married and everyone gets pardoned and they all get new commissions and no one gets punished. Yeah. That's oh, it. one final note that I forgot to put in here. I was putting this in the end, but um, Charles II um, uh, talking about Berkeley. So the commissioner was very critical of Berkeley's handling of uh, things. And uh, Charles II said um, that uh, Berkeley hanged more men in that naked country than I did in this one for the pe- for people killing his father, um, <laughs> which wow. is an amazing comparison for a monarch to make. Like th- those are the type of metrics you can only have access to if you're in royalty. Like, okay, but... <laughs> Like that comparison, I wouldn't think to make that one. But like, oh yeah, my dad was killed, and I didn't hang nearly the motherfuckers that this guy did in fucking Virginia. So yeah, like Berkeley wasn't great. Um, at least, uh, at least the uh, you know the aristocracy didn't think so. But um, that's all I have to say on this uh, episode here. Uh, do you guys have anything else you want to uh, put in? I think just the only thing is I just like 
I, I think Bacon is probably like the most interesting and dynamic character of this play. And there was, I think, I can't remember. I think it was like the first act. There's this like, when the council is talking, they're like making a reference to um, Plutarch's parallel lives. Like, Oh, like Bacon's been reading the parallel lives, which is this like Roman text about how um, Rome is just as it's written in the first century AD. And it's like, Oh yeah, like Rome is just as important as Greece because look at these like parallel heroes that we have, and that that's like the nature of that that uh, very important uh, work from antiquity. And they're like, he's reading it to learn how to be like a like a, a hero, and he's like learning how to like he's taking all our secrets. And there's I think like parallelism is like something that's really important in this like play, whether it's like uh, like the differences between like Rome and Athens or in like Bacon's case, native Americans and the colonialists. And this guy has like a cheat guide and he's able to like go through them. And I think in the parallel lives, uh, like, cause it, it takes like a Rome, a Roman and, and a Grecian in comparison. I think for Julius Caesar is his, uh, comparison is, um, Alexander the great. And I feel like mm-hmm. Alexander and Julius Caesar are the two, like, people that he's most uh, bacon is like most referred to. And there's actually like a little like um, uh, myth in the biography of Alexander in parallel lives. It's like he learned about uh, kissing in India, like kissing on the lips <laughs> and uh, it's like, so oh, yeah, 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 exactly. And so, really? <laughs> well, it's not, I mean, it's not like it's supposedly, it's not like a, it's not a natural behavior. It's a learned behavior. And so according to Plutarch, he learned it in India but um yeah but um so like it makes sense for bacon who's like both like a lover and a conqueror like he's like both alexander and caesar and this council's like someone has got to stop this guy because he's like abusing what this book is for he's like some sort of like uh self-taught uh autodidact i feel like that's like a nice little like proto version of like what america is going to be yeah, that's so hilarious. That's like the the totemistic use of learning and mm-hmm. how it becomes like your passport. Even like he, it, he could have read fucking anything, right? Like anything from antiquity or whatever and just like cited it. But just long, as long as that's not really what was propelling him. It was uh, like that he came from a certain like milieu uh, and had money to just come and immediately be set up in Virginia as one of the biggest landowners and was young about it. Um, and you, you know, you can luck into a widow maybe if you're one of these guys, like, but you can just say the reason I'm this successful is cause I was reading Plutarch's lives actually. Yeah, exactly. And, it's like, yeah. And the crazy I learned the secrets is, is he might actually think that and other people might actually <laughs> think that's why. Yeah. And, yeah. I it's mean, like that's, the that's the, talking about how much they read. It's crazy. Yeah. And just like oh. a CEO talking about like, oh yeah, I read, I don't know what some dumb like future book. Eckhart Tolle, baby. Or Michio Kaku, <laughs> right? Like I read about space elevators uh, and how we might have them in 2050. And that makes me a renaissance man. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that is, that's funny. Um, well guys, uh, thank you very much. We'll try to record this a little bit earlier for Grace out there on the other side okay. of the pond. Grace, what time is it? Uh, it's one forty-three a.m. No, you sound great. You sound yeah, totally well. lucid. <laughs> <laughs> My voice is going to lose some octaves at some point, but um, yeah, I'm good. All right, folks. Um, check at Patreon.com/slash/LiteraryHangover if you want to uh, help us keep this going. Um, and uh, we will see you next time.